Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It's Thursday, and you're watching AM to DM. And we've got some breaking news from you. This is from the AP. We're going to bring up the tweet right now. Very sad news. Uh, breaking publicist for Aretha Franklin says the Queen of Soul died Thursday at her home in Detroit. And that is that just broke on the timeline. Just a few moments ago. And of course, the iconic soul singer uh, has been uh, in hospice in Detroit for the last few days. Um, people like Jesse Jackson and other icons have been showing up to say uh, their goodbyes. Um, and I mean, it's it, to call her a soul singer actually dismisses the breadth of, of what she accomplished over the course of her life. She was a singer. She was an artist. She was an American icon. Yes. She was everything. And I think you've seen, as this news has come out, people kind of sharing their stories, having this kind of outpouring of love for her. Um, and it is. It's really sad to see that it happened. Right. And uh, she retired a few years ago, Her her la or a couple of years ago. Her, her last public appearance uh, was in November of 2017 at Elton John's AIDS Foundation 25th anniversary gala. I, I want to say, you know, I've spent the last few days, I made a little playlist uh, listening to some of my favorite songs and discovering, you know, new versions and, 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 and recordings, live performances that she's done. And I think a lot of people have. And and um, of course, this is a loss. But I think in this kind of grief, there's an opportunity for new discovery mm. um, and, and paying homage to, you know, a woman uh, who, who, who did so much. And appreciating all the work, yeah. the art yeah. that she left us with that we can listen to yeah. now. So, of course, again, this just happened uh, a few moments ago in terms of the news breaking. Um, feel free to share your thoughts. We will share more as we learn more this morning. And our thoughts, of course, with her family. Mm -hmm. All right, listen, we're talking quite a bit today on the show about rejection. And that's in part because of uh, the share your rejection hashtag that Saeed started almost on a whim yesterday and really took off. Right. Like So today's uh, Dear Ferocity advice segment, it'll be uh, later this morning. Um, I'm talking about rejection failure. Uh, and so I, I reached out to people, uh, you know, just saying like, hey, here's the topic, as I always do every week. Send me questions. I've gotten a lot of questions. Thank you for all of those. Um, but I decided, you know, it helps to, to share your own experiences, to open up. So I was like, Okay, here's some of you know I've I've applied to Brett Lowe so many times. I've been recommended, nominated to apply, rejected, rejected, rejected. Uh, you know, rejected from book agents who said my memoir wouldn't sell. We know how that story ends. Um, but the hashtag, oh my it, gosh, it really took off. I'm sorry, I just got a little mad because you brought up Brett Lowe. Um, <laughs> what you doing? But no, here's the thing. It was really in, enjoyable to watch. You actually had a book event last night. You were talking yes. to Thomas Page McBee, who will actually be on the show today. Um, so I was like slacking you, texting you because I. I logged into Twitter and I saw that it was trending. It went from like a few people sharing stories to all of a sudden trending nationwide. That's pretty cool. And, and and something that happens with that is, you know, it, it kind of begins to change genres and everything. And so we have some examples um, from not just writers, all kinds of artists. This uh, is a tweet from Gabby Calvacoresi, one of my favorite poets. She had a poem in uh, The New Yorker recently I love. She tweeted this. Uh, After college, I saved up to take a workshop in New York City. After the third class, the fairly well-known poet teacher took me aside and said, you are very smart and you, you cannot write poems. 
I am doing you a favor by telling you now. Wow. Doing a you a favor by telling you now. And to the, I mean, this part of me is like, yeah, that poet's doing themselves a favor by trying to get Gabby out of the way so that they can grab that New Yorker spot. Because yeah. Gabby's I, poem was incredible. She's an incredible artist. Um, and, and there's a whole thread. And, and, and sadly, I've heard stories like that from a lot of different artists. So my turn to ask you, mm. do you have a rejection story? Yeah. I mean, listen, I don't know any writer or artist who really doesn't. Um, when I was first starting out, I've, I've talked about on the show, I just consume books, I absolutely love books, but I really didn't know how one became a writer. I almost thought it was like a gift of, from God or something, mm -hmm. you know? But when I was at college, I saw a class and it said intro to writing. And I was like, okay, that seems good. Listen, I wrote a very ham-fisted short story because we got to own that too. Sometimes you deserve the rejection. Sometimes an editor's kind of maybe sometimes saving you from yourself. Sometimes it is a favor. Yes, sometimes <laughs> it is a favor. Sometimes yeah. it is a favor. Um, and it was. It was, it was. it was all about this white trash background, and like I think everybody died at the end, and the teacher kind of took me aside and was like, hey, this doesn't work, which, fair and good. But it was this next part, and this is the part that I think is why your hashtag kind of took off in such a major way. It's when people say this next part, which is the teacher said, you just don't got it. Okay. And that's what it is. Yeah. That's it's one thing to reject to, to turn a story away. It's it's when you take it to that next step. That's like, hey, I'm doing you a favor. You just don't got it. Get out of the game because that's not how this game is played. Mm -hmm. Because as I see it, rejection is natural. Rejection is a part of just putting yourself out there. You should not get accepted for every single opportunity you apply for. But rejection and failure should not be synonymous. Mm -hmm. So I think particularly with people early in their career, it's like, no, you've got to stumble. you got to make mistakes. you got to hit your head against the wall a few times. That has nothing to do with whether or not you should stop. Yeah, and it wasn't just writers, all right? This mm -hmm. cross genres, everyone started sharing their yeah. rejection Woo! stories. Uh, and so we, we're going to speak to that. Uh, here's what Lauren Morelli had to say. I was rejected from the Warner Brothers TV Writers Workshop three years in a row. The next year, I got staffed on Orange is the New Black. Yeah. And, mm. and, and Laura Morelli also met uh, a certain actor by the name of Samira Wiley. Congratulations on your recent nuptials, ladies. Uh, here's a tweet from Roxanne Gay. She had a whole thread, but here's something she had to say about the TV world as well. I recently wrote a script for a TV show I was hired to write for, and they hated the script and fired me. That one still stings, but I learn from it. It was my first try. I will do better next time. Yeah, and I'm obsessed with this tweet from Sade Sellers. A guy went on a few dates with Stop Seeing Me so he could focus on his career. Five years later, he was auditioning for one of my films. That a plot twist. Bloops on bloops <laughs> quite, on bloops. Quite, so many bloops. Quite literally. So yeah. many bloops. Wow. But this is the thing about this. It's it's easy to tell a story from way back in the day, mm -hmm. but it is also very current. Like to, to see that from Roxanne Gay, somebody who we all see is so successful. That was like just this year I was dealing this. This is part of the process. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say briefly, this is what I've learned from seeing the hashtag just kind of in sum. Um, we are told that we should want to be successful, but we have, I think, this idea in American culture in particular that you should just be successful, you should just happen. We're not supposed to show the striving. Mm. We're not supposed to show all of the steps. We're just supposed to, it's only fun and great to talk about the happy ending, not about everything along the way. And the problem is, I think people are very lonely in their experiences with rejection. So I hope in seeing this, particularly younger writers or just newer writers and artists, I hope you realize that it's like, no, you know, well-known, I mean, Laura Morelli, Roxanne Gay, these are very, very successful people. Rejection's just a part of the game. Yeah, absolutely, and, and for me, it really is, it's not 
effortless. I can't wait to see the Dear Ferocity segment that we're doing later in the show. It's gonna be amazing. Well, let's keep it going. Tweet us your career rejection stories, the, the rejection you've experienced using the hashtag ShareYourRejections. Yeah, we've all got a story or a few. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. The Christian baker who refused to sell a custom wedding cake to a gay couple is back in court, this time for turning away a transgender customer. BuzzFeed News reporter Dominic Holden joins us now to discuss the case. Good morning, Dominic. Good morning. All right, so our first question actually comes from a tweet from Saeed Jones, and it is, is this how the only baker in town? What's the deal? Well, let me first pay my respect to Aretha Franklin before anything else happens. If you haven't listened to her Dr. Feelgood in 1971 live at Fillmore West, you haven't lived, listen to it all the way through. To, to go to this question of like, is this the only baker in town? We saw a lot of this question yesterday. We saw it when there was the original case of this gay couple. And, um, you know, there were these questions of the civil rights activists who did sit-ins at lunch counters at Woolworths and other places. Why don't they just go somewhere else? And this is uh, sort of raises this issue that's central to the civil rights movement, which is that non-discrimination laws apply equally. No matter where you go, you can't just have a bakery for white people or for straight people. Colorado bans LGBT discrimination in places of public accommodation. Furthermore, for some people, they might be able to go to another baker. Some people can't. And these laws exist for people who have the privilege to go somewhere else and the people who don't. Um, so uh, this is not just about those individuals who have a lot of choices. It's also about the people who don't have them. Yeah, that's an excellent point. In terms of this case, um, I would say, listen, if I were a judge <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, in June I decided a case with one person under a specific circumstance, a lawsuit, and then in July I look up and the same person is there in front of me uh, now, you know, suing some other person, I, I think I would be a little thrown off. So I guess my question is, what's up with this Christian Baker? Um, how does religious liberty get us to a trans woman uh, wanting a cake? Well, I mean, we've got to understand that, you know, when we look at these civil rights debates over public accommodations, it's not just about uh, whether you need to be able to eat lunch. Our society says that a cake is important for our weddings. It is important for our birthdays. So this is a type of product that our society uses to celebrate our equality in society. And this baker says that because he is Christian, he does not believe that same-sex couples should be married. And he likewise says that God has determined that sex is biological and it's sex is determined at birth, that you cannot be transgender. And he's claiming that he has a First Amendment right under uh, the Free Exercise of Religion Clause to express his religion even while he's at work, and also the Free Speech Clause, that he cannot be compelled to participate in speech that he does not believe in. And so he's asking a judge once again to consider this claim, as judges have around the country, whether or not the First Amendment essentially provides an exemption to religious people to sidestep non-discrimination laws. All right, and because again, this, it was like we just ruled on this. Uh, that said, that that ruling was a little more narrow, I think, uh, than what people were expecting, which is how we got to where we are now. So I got to ask: Time is a flat circle. What's next, Dominic? 
<laughs> well, you know, next um, we are going to see uh, if a court thinks that this claim is substantially different. We've got to understand that the Supreme Court, when it ruled originally, found that there had been anti-religious hostility shown by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission when they adjudicated the case. In the complaint that was filed this week, they don't present the same sort of facts that show that hostility. Originally, in the previous case, someone had compared uh, the defenses of the Baker to defenses of slavery and the Holocaust. We don't see that here. And so we have to find out if a court is willing to make the next step and say there actually is a constitutional right to discriminate or uh, reject it or or whether the very enforcement of non-discrimination laws is a form of religious hostility. Okay. Well, Dominic, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. And friends, uh, if you're just now uh, joining AM to DM, of course, the iconic singer uh, Aretha Franklin died uh, just last night at the age of 76, and we're just remembering her throughout the show this morning. Here's a tweet from John Legend. Salute to the queen, the greatest vocalist I have ever known. Yeah, and Dominic, when we spoke with him, just shared one of his favorite songs. If you're compelled, share your favorite Aretha Franklin song, especially like Date. Maybe it was one of the live shows. Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Absolutely. Uh, we've got a fascinating story from BuzzFeed News media editor Craig Silverman, who tweeted, over the past two years, Kathy Kostrup, Waters, and Brian Denny have reported roughly 2,000 fake Facebook accounts all in their spare time. Average folks like them are trying to fix Facebook and say they're frustrated with the company's lack of effort. Craig Silverman joins us now from Toronto. Craig, good morning. Morning. Good morning, and we love that background wall. Okay, so Craig, uh, <laughs> who are Kathy and Brian, and how did they, because the story is so wild, uh, become unpaid community moderators for Facebook? Well, first thing to note is they don't work for Facebook at all. Uh, and so Kathy has worked in the healthcare industry. She lives in California. Brian is a 26-year veteran of the Army. He works as a defense contractor and consultant now. But the thing about him is his photos have been stolen so many times by people trying to run romance scams where they pretend to be a military officer and steal money from people that the two of them basically teamed up after her mother, uh, a friend of her mother, lost money to someone who used his photos to steal from them. Uh, so they became a dynamic duo. And for two years, as you noted, they've, they've reported, they estimate about 2,000 fake accounts, many of them using his photos, sometimes other military service members. Um, and they estimate they've spent like thousands of hours doing that. Thousands of hours. Now, are Brian and Kathy alone in, in this mm. fight? No, this, the, the thing about this is that, uh, you know, there's so many fake accounts, there's so many bots and other things on Facebook that there's really kind of a loose global network of individuals like them. I recently profiled a woman who's a former Tea Party activist who now spends her time teaching people how to spot fake profiles on Facebook, again, in her spare time. You have NGOs around the world who are trying to do this in different places, you know, to get hate speech and other kinds of content taken down. And also, you know, I talked to an executive at, at uh, Publishers Clearinghouse, you know, the, the sweepstakes people, they constantly have to be taking down fake accounts that are created with photos of their employees by people running sweepstakes scams. Okay, I wanted to, to focus on Brian Denny because there's a moment where you see like three different Facebook accounts with this photo, often in uniform, and it says widower. So I was curious about, uh, is there something uh, unique about members of the military, widowers? Why is that such a compelling uh, love scam, I guess? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple pieces to it. I mean, the the first is that, you know, there's a certain certain kind of aura and attraction to someone in uniform. Um, so on, if you're running a romance scam uh, and you know that people tend to love a man in uniform, well, that's that's a helpful thing. The second is, I think, you know, there's a lot of respect for people who serve and people who are in uniform. Uh, and so that helps. And actually, I'll add a third in, which is that people in uniform often have to be overseas serving. So if you're going to run a scam and you're not going to be able to meet the person in person that you're trying to get the money from, the military cover is perfect because you can say, hey, I'm overseas. I'm in a war zone. Oh, you know, can you can you just lend me five thousand dollars? I've you know, I've missed a couple mortgage payments because I'm over here. And it's a really easy way to get the scam going. Okay, wow. overseas, let's talk wow. more about where these scams are coming from. Do we know who's behind them? You know, it, 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 there's, there's one country in particular that tends to stand out if you look at a lot of the, um, the prosecutions and indictments and things that take place. And it happens to be Nigeria. And, and of course, you know, there's always the jokes about the, you know, the Nigerian email scams and, you know, the Nigerian prince contacting you with money and this kind of thing. And, you know, they, they, some of the scammers there have branched out and romance scams and sweet state scams are a big thing. And, and this, is a, this is a really big business. I mean, the estimates from the FTC and FBI is that over $800 million have been stolen in, in the United States alone since 2015. $800 million uh, just in 2018. Well, what is Facebook doing about this? What would people like uh, Kathy and, and Brian like Facebook to do about this? You know, the big the big complaint that I hear from people is that, you know, they're constantly having to report accounts that use the same photos over and over again. So they want Facebook to get better at stopping this where it starts, stopping people from using photos again and again to create fake and imposter accounts. Um, and so they, they want it to make it so that these accounts aren't able to be created. That's the big thing. You know, the other one they ask for really is just, you know, kind of more response and more interaction from Facebook. Kathy and Brian deliver quarterly reports to Facebook. You know, I looked at, at these, and they're like 11 pages long, they have attachments, and they don't really get a lot of feedback from Facebook. They don't get updates on new things being rolled out, and they want more interaction from them, and they want them to block these accounts so that they don't have to go and report them. So that they don't have to go and report them or have their face used as a romance scam. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Craig. Thank you. All right, Twitter, uh, we have an interview with Thomas Page McBee, author of Ma uh, Amateur, uh, The Making of a Real Man. He is the first transgender man to fight in Madison Square Garden. You're going to be talking to him later. We're actually just going to box. It's <laughs> just okay. going to be boxing. Oh, yeah. I'm going right. to put on the gloves. It's going to be great. Oh, okay. He's going to kick my ass. <laughs> and up next, of course, is Fire Tweet. I just want to let you guys know I'm heartened by all the Aretha Franklin songs that you're sharing on the timeline using the hashtag am to dm I feel like I'm going to make a playlist after the show. I already have one. It. I'll tweet it out. I made it a few days ago. I love it. I Stay love ready. It. Stay ready. Anyway, here's our tweet. Uh, this comes from, oh, what's occurring? What a username. Okay. At the gym, I said subscription instead of membership, and the girl replied with, lol, this isn't a pharmacy. Bitch, that's a prescription. We're both stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the face you made right there, man. We're both stupid. Yeah, we're both stupid. We both boo-boo the fool today. <laughs> uh, I need a prescription okay. for the gym. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Cranky Munez, you tweeted, the walk of shame has nothing to do with sex. It's actually when I walk out of my bedroom with seven half empty water glasses once a week. That was me this morning. Ooh, that's me, yeah. What's that about? That's Why, the realist. Like there's already a glass there. You don't need to bring another glass for the nightstand. It's laziness. I was walking with a fresh new glass every day. Just yeah. build it up over the week. It's a thing. It's like a little collection. <laughs> This tweet comes from, well, the iconic Ira Madison III. What if we can't find the N-word tape because it's on title? <laughs> he also tweeted that Omarosa needs to release uh, Aaliyah's catalog. What? You out here putting out tapes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ira, yeah. And it's on title, that's why none of us know. I ain't saying shit, man. I ain't messing with title <laughs> at all. All right, here we go. Aries, he tweeted, Ideologically, I don't agree with organized religion, but they kind of went off with stained glass. Mm. Mm. That's just true. Yeah, I gotta tell you, uh, as a gay kid who grew up having to go to church very often with my grandmother, the pretty stained glass windows were <laughs> just a real refuge for I, me to like stare at while I was like, oh. I remember being a kid and being like, why don't we do this everywhere? <laughs> this seems like pretty chill. Why doesn't a car dealership just have like stained glass of cars? Wouldn't hate it. You know? I have to admit. I was just like, why do they get to do it? Just your house, just a stained glass of you. Shining. There it Don't is. Don't threaten me with a good time. All right, tweet of the day. Let's do it. Ready? It's a rude one. I love it. Tweet of the day comes from Vibrant New York. Uh, y'all buy sage like y'all aren't the negative energy in the room. I don't understand. <laughs> That's true. Why, why would you burn in all that sage? <laughs> oh, boo -boo. Just leave. I'm getting all the corners. Just yeah, leave but you're the room. still in the room. You can sage the room, mm. or you can mm. leave the room. <laughs> I take my sage to a Roomba. Let it go. <laughs> Listen, keep that sage handy because up next we're going <sighs> live from the dish. Oh. Welcome back, friends. We are going live from the district with BuzzFeed News political reporter Paul McLeod. Paul, good morning. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Now, Paul, I want to ask you, what was your favorite part of that Washington Post story about Kellyanne and George Conway that really took over the timeline yesterday? Uh, hands down, my favorite part was when she's talking about a tweet that her husband sent that criticized the president very harshly, and she was just like, you know, it was, a, it was an affront to... It was a betrayal, it was an affront to basic decency and maybe even to the matrimonial vows and you contribute that to a uh, source familiar with the relationship. And the writer goes, what? No, we're on the record. I'm not going to call you a source familiar with the relationship. It's coming from you. And then she kind of goes, oh, well, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that, but people are saying that. It was the perfect window into how Kellyanne Conway just has her day-to-day -day interactions with people. And, and just to, to follow up, um, because I think a lot of the conversation was on Twitter was about this, the way Kellyanne Conway was trying to navigate on and off the record. Is that usually what it's like when you are talking to sources as a reporter? Not, no, no, not usually, but some people, yeah, some people are really weird about it. I, I, I did a piece uh, a couple weeks ago, a long piece on Paul Ryan, where 
some of his people were trying to defend him off the record. And I said to them, look, this is all good. I want this in my story, but you've got to go on the record. I'm not quoting you, like you need to go on the record. And they just wouldn't do it. Some people are really weird about it and I don't understand their approach. Most people are more sane. When I'm talking smack on your tweets, uh, I do make sure that everyone I'm talking smack to knows I'm off the record. Okay, <laughs> I'm aware. Anyway, uh, here's a tweet from the New York Times. In opinion, John Brennan, the former CIA chief writes, Trump clearly has become more desperate to protect himself and those close to him. This op-ed was in response to Trump revoking Brennan's security clearances yesterday, like so many other ex-national security officials who have criticized the president. Paul, why did Trump revoke Brennan's clearance now? Mm. So both sides agree on what it was that sparked this. It was Brennan's comments about, I mean, he's been very critical of the president, saying that there was collusion between his administration, or his um, campaign at the time, and the Russian government. And Trump's point of view was that, look, this is this guy's reckless, uh, he's out of control, he cannot be trusted with security clearance and access to our nation's secrets. Whereas Brennan's point has been, look, this is, this is nonsense, this is Trump trying to lash out at and silence his critics. Mm. Um, of course, this idea was introduced just a month ago with a whole group of people. Uh, so is there any mm -hmm. indication that Brennan is just the first of several people could ha who could have these clearances revoked? I would think so, yeah. I mean, we, we were warned by, I think it was Sarah Sanders that was the first person to bring it up, saying announcing they were reviewing the clearance of a bunch of people who essentially had served under Obama. And, I mean, you know, some names you would know, like, like James Comey, for example, Exhibit A. I don't think anyone's going to be shocked if we see more of these coming down the line and people like Comey or Sally Yates or whatever, people who've been critical of the administration, suddenly start getting their security clearances dropped. I'd probably put some money on that. Put some money on it. Well, Paul, I'm curious. Just remind me, why do officials sometimes keep their clearances again? Right. So it's standard procedure just for continuity. I mean, the idea is that if you're, say, the C former CIA director, that you oversaw this whole department, you have a base of knowledge that it would be useful for your successors to pull on sometimes. So, like, for example, like, Isaac, if or when they eventually get rid of you and put me in as the bearded co-host of AM to DM, Ooh. I will still want to pick your brain sometimes about some of the challenges of the job. It's, it's basically the same thing. Sadly, Saeed will have revoked my clearance and I'll be of no help to you. I apologize. That's, that's true. No. <laughs> One more question, Paul. Um, I mean, listen, I, I do want to say, listen, uh, the, the U.S. <laughs> security military infrastructure, you know, I do not think of as being a sacred institution that can do no wrong. Um, but that said, it is alarming, right, uh, to see security clearances being taken away um, and uh, like as a punitive measure. So is it fair uh, to say that like people have reason to be somewhat alarmed by this tactic? Well, like so many things with the Trump administration, this is just a huge break from the norm. We don't normally see politicians using this power, which presidents have, but it's just not been used like this to go after their political critics and strip them of security clearance, which, you know, has an effect. Certain jobs you can only have if you have security clearance. It can have uh, an effect on what these people are able to do. I mean, even some Republicans, uh, Senator Bob Corker, who is, he's a Republican, but he's been a, a critic of Trump pretty regularly, but he 
told me yesterday, he was like, this is Banana Republic stuff. This is ridiculous. So it's definitely, there are a lot of people shaking their heads at this uh, in Washington, wondering like, wh where, what are we doing here? Where's this going? Okay, where is this going? Well, to that end, uh, Paul, we understand that you're publishing a story soon regarding Medicaid, something mm. that people often ask, where's this going? Uh, what's the story there? Okay, so this is a story about, that's gonna be coming out about, basically we are going to start as early as next month seeing the effects of the Trump administration reworking its whole, the country's whole approach to Medicaid. Right now, Medicaid, which is uh, publicly subsidized health insurance for people who are, say, uh, sick or, or disabled, can't work because of that, this was expanded under Obama to include uh, people who are very poor, making incomes at or below or a little bit above the poverty line. It has consistently been an entitlement program where if you meet the criteria, you have access to this health insurance. The Trump administration came out and said, look, we, we are for work requirements. We are going to let states, if they want, level all kinds of requirements on their Medicaid programs, saying, let's say, you have to either work or volunteer or go to some sort of job training 20 hours a week to get, keep your health insurance, and if not, you're gonna lose it. Some of those states, we've had about eight that are in, somewhere in the process of trying to enact that. Some already have, and in Arkansas now, we're starting to see the first results, and they are basically that it looks like 10,000 people are going to be kicked off of Medicaid over the next couple months. Wow. All right, what, what were the previous work requirements? Were there any? No, there weren't really any before. I mean, there were different states that had tried to experiment with this, but ultimately they have to be approved by the administration of the day. And for the Obama administration, they essentially just wouldn't approve any of them. Uh, anything like what we're seeing in Arkansas, which again, if it's basically, unless you have an exemption, and you can get exemptions if you're like, physically unable to, to get out of bed, or if you're looking after dying relatives, things like that. If you don't have an exemption, you have to spend basically a part-time job uh, either working or or proving to us that you're being a, a valuable member of society. Obama said, no, that's that's too much to expect of many of these people. We're not going to prove it. The Trump administration's taken the exact opposite approach. And so far, I mean, the results we're seeing, again, in Arkansas, only a small number, about 800 people who were qualified, uh, um, required and didn't have exemptions to meet to meet these standards have met them versus, again, it's looking like maybe 10,000. So we're talking like, about 80% when you look at all the numbers of people were not meeting this criteria. And if other states start doing that, we're getting into tens of thousands of people who are going to be kicked off Medicaid over the next several months. Tens of thousands of people kicked wow. off Medicaid. Well, Paul, listen, we will look for that story and thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. All right, good talking with you guys. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, can't believe he's coming for my job. Listen, up next, I sit down with author and boxer Thomas Page McBee. Stay tuned. Excited about that conversation. We're gonna have great. It's really great book. Yeah. This is the sit down, and I'm joined by Thomas Page McBee, author of the new book Amateur: A True Story About What Makes a Man. Good morning. How are you? Morning. So good to be here. So good to have you. Listen, you trained for five months. Yep. First transgender man to box at Madison Square Garden. It's wild, right? Why'd you do it? Because once I transitioned, I was really interested in figuring out how to like, sort of conquer my fears about masculinity, and especially the things about masculinity that were 
troubling or dissonant for me as like a feminist and as a person who'd lived in this body for a long time prior to transition. So one day a guy tried to street fight me mm -hmm. and it was bizarre. Mm -hmm. And I realized, like, if I didn't start tackling these questions of, like, why are these sorts of things happening, I might just become that guy. Mm -hmm. So I decided I would ask why men fight. And then I ended up exploring that by training to fight and then fighting in Madison Square Garden. It all connects when you think about it. No, it absolutely <laughs> does. But take us, take us into that moment on the street. Yeah. How did that feel for you? What, what did you find out about yourself that maybe you didn't like? It was disturbing because it was the third incident that summer, actually. So three different times, which is wild, right? Mm -hmm. Like this was the third time this guy tried a, a, a guy tried to fight me on the street, and this last time I just felt in myself a feeling like I was going to actually engage him, mm -hmm. and I was going to get into like this scrape and fight this guy back, mm -hmm. and that to me felt like toxic masculinity just manifested, you know. So. Once that happened, I realized if I don't change this, you know, I'm, I'm just going to become it. And that was, that was when I decided to do something about it. And you wanted to confront it. How did training, how did learning how to box, how did, how did that change you? Um, you know, it, in a lot of ways. The first way, the main way is I think I realized that asking questions about masculinity was the first step to trying to, to change my perspective in it. You know, I think we see masculinity as this monolith. Like there's one way to be a man and um, you have to protect that way at all costs. Like that's why when people say real man, we all know what it means, even though we're all always trying to, to get closer to that. You know, no one's ever actually a real man. So I think for me, realizing that there's no such thing as a real man, um, realizing that uh, in my training I could have intimacy with other men, mm. realizing that violence when it's consensual can actually be an interesting place to sort of get to know yourself. Mm. Um, and, you know, probably I think I've learned a lot about my own vulnerabilities and strengths. And the main thing is that I feel like asking questions about masculinity was a way to deconstruct, you know, basic notions of what it even means and enlarge it. You know? the, the basic notions. Of, can you talk a little bit about that intimacy that you felt when, in locker rooms and, 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 yeah. and, and, and through fighting and, 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 and training? Yeah, I was surprised, honestly. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, you know, sort of, I was sort of undercover. People didn't know I was trans, so mm -hmm. I went into this experience kind of really trying to be really open to like what might exist. And, in that, these and that's in the book, the tension, especially when you first start. Yeah. So, I mean, it's page turning. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And so, but what I guess was really shocking, I mean, of course, there was some behavior that was problematic or disturbing, but most of the time I saw men taking care of each other. Mm. Uh, a lot of boxing, which I find surprising, is um, is actually about preparing each other for the fight. You know, you think of boxing as like one person versus another person in a ring, and it's very like a very solo task, but really it takes a lot of training ahead of time and working together and sort of intimacy uh, and, and getting to know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Mm. Um, so the sparring ahead of time and sort of having a, a kind of team around me of men who were like just genuinely interested in my success. Mm. Um, and because it's a physical sport, it's like such a kinesthetic uh, kind of experience that you really are in such intense physical contact all the time that I found myself in really um, sort of physically intimate dynamics with men that I never had before. Mm. Um, and I think the cover of violence actually gave a lot of the men I was working with license to be a lot more affectionate than even men normally are. So it was surprising in that way. And can you talk about that a little bit, the, what, you, what you just called the, the cover of violence? I mean, yeah. I, look, even on, right before this show, right, I yeah. joked about you and I were yeah. going to fight. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I talked to some sociologists. I mean, the book is a reported book. I end up talking to like biologists, sociologists, historians about sort of how we construct masculinity and white masculinity in particular since I'm a white man and um, 
and it, it struck me when I was asking a bunch of folks about this, and they sort of agreed that that's exactly why that intimacy was possible, you know, because otherwise it would be considered homoerotic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and because there was the sort of the lack of threat, you know, to one's sexuality or gender identity in that way, the men I was around, I think, felt more like they could be in touch with what really is their humanity, you know, mm. their ability to have empathy or to connect in a deep and physical way. It's always there. It's just that, like, because of the way we enculture men, I think it's it's latent for a lot of men, you know, and yeah. that brought it out for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this book also, listen, it falls into this genre, though, right? Man fights other men yeah. to confront self. Right. And it's a genre we've seen a lot of. I don't know if you have any favorites from the genre, but that's what surprised me so much when I read it was how you kind of took this to what could be argued as a tired genre <laughs> and really breathed new life into it. When did you realize, because I know you, this started as an article, when did you realize that there might be a full reported book here? When I realized that this idea of asking a question, even if I couldn't get to like the, the deepest possible answer, but just asking that question freed up for me so much of what felt tired or constrained about what you know my experience of masculinity was. I think, you know, like Fight Club, you know, the first rule of being a man is that you don't ever ask anything about being a man. You know, you're supposed to just <laughs> you're supposed to just like know what it is. If, Read the rule book. Right, exactly. Don't don't talk yeah, about Yeah, and, and and asking it at all is sort of a threat, you know? So I think it felt to me like once I asked a question and went through that experience, I realized there were a lot of other questions I had. So, you know, that's when I realized it was a book. I think the idea of it being um, a narrative of, of man against man, I love narrative narrative theory. And I think when people have something they can latch onto, especially when you're dealing with topics that are a little like maybe not familiar to folks, like mm-hmm. trans bodies, mm-hmm. um, you know, man against man, man against nature, man against himself. These are familiar archetypical storylines. And I think, I, I think that might be actually a useful thing, you know, yeah. for a lot of readers who might be new to uh, understanding my experience. It's like a comfortable way into it to yeah. kind of learn about this whole new world. Totally. Um, I do gotta ask, yeah. How did it feel to fight in Madison Square Garden? It was crazy. <laughs> I think I wasn't. I I think I was so concerned with so many other things going on that it took until like literally when I was entering the garden mm. for me to fully understand that I had signed up to do this. <laughs> and did you have any last where you're like, oh, hang on a second? I mean, yeah, but also like I I felt like I totally was happy to find that you know a lot of this that whole experience was seeing like who I really was. You know, I mean, it's a real thing that 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 boxing strips you of all pretension and all um, ego in a way, and so. It was interesting because walking in, I knew I wasn't going to be like a mean mugging, you know, kind of guy. It's just not, I smile too much, I can't do it. Uh, but I was like, how am I going to enter, you know, because that's important. And as I was just walking in, like the way I responded just physically without thinking was to just be super excited. And I was like jumping up and down and like just feeling like energetic. And that, you know, that was my strength. And, and it was nice to see that that was where I went immediately. You that know? you had that energy and yeah. that you were that excited about. Because you don't know until you're kind of no. confronted in that moment. <laughs> moment. Yeah. Um, I want to bring up a tweet that you, you just tweeted recently. You said, it's refreshing to talk to reporters as a trans man today versus 2014 when my first book came out versus 2011 when I had my first full-time newsroom job. I don't leave most interviews feeling violated and mad at the world. It's nice to be treated like a human being. It matters. So I want to ask you, Thomas, like, how are things different now? How, what are those changes between those moments in your life? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what's been great is the visibility of trans people in, in all kinds of mediums. I think the work that a lot of trans reporters have put into newsrooms. I think the work that reporters have put into understanding and, and educating themselves about trans bodies. Mm-hmm. It used to be that there are these super flat, 
you know, narratives about, you know, trans people. We were born in the wrong body, then we get to be in our right bodies, you know, like we're kind of aliens, like, and then we, uh, and then we just sort of launch into life and everything's fine from there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's really dehumanizing in a way because it sort of others us. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a gender. That's why I wrote this book is I wanted to, to speak to that. And, and I think the more we realize that gender is just um, part of the human experience and and I mean gender as in gender roles and the way that we construct our bodies in space. And this is the first mediating way in which most people interact with us. You know? mm-hmm. So I think that, that people are starting to realize that trans people are just one you know, facet of gender identity. And treating me like a human being in conversation is, like to me, like a good barometer of that realization. And that, that, that society has made these steps forward. I mean, yes. still with a lot There's of steps. There's a lot to do. A lot of steps to <laughs> There's do. There's a lot to do. Um, before I let you go, yeah. Saeed and I are heading out on the road. Okay. I, it's, I won't lie, it's been a little while since I've been in a scrape, as you put it. So I was wondering if I could ask you to teach me how to throw a punch. Okay. And we can stand up for this. All right, we can stand we up. We can All right. stand up for this. All right. So yeah. we're going to face each other. Uh, oh, we're, we are? Yeah. Don't punch me, though. No, I'm not going to punch okay. you. Okay. All right. So the first one, the most important one, is the jab. Uh-huh. And that's for measuring distance. Okay. So not for power, right? Okay. So make sure you keep your hands up here so that you're protected. Okay. Like that. that? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. And then it's a left, so like. I'm going to back up a little. Yeah, so yeah, let's do that. So you just stick out your left, and uh, that way you know how far away my face is. Okay, like that? Yeah. Got it. And then if you want to, once you know yeah. that's where my face is, then you hit me with a right, and you got to turn your body when you do it. Okay, so okay. like the left is just kind of straightforward? Yeah. And then the right is a turn. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yes. okay. You want to hit me with one? No. <laughs> not for real, not for real, not right. for real. All right, so left, Yeah. and then a right. Right, all uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so up up, up high, because yeah. that's I, I tend to do this. Don't do that, because then your face is, is not protected. This okay. way, it's like nobody can get you. you and know? you know I want to protect this beautiful yeah, face. Yeah, but there you okay. go, now you're ready. Perfect, and Yeah. Then boom, Yeah. and then boom. Pull pop, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome, all right, All right. Wonderful. I love it. Come here, give me All right, wonderful, wonderful. Thanks everybody, thanks to in books now up next we've got more am to dm please do read this book it's very important and it's also fucking beautiful i'm gonna say it well, yeah. thank you buddy here's a quote from a piece by the cuts gabriella paella this is a story about perseverance a story about embracing change and accepting the unexpected a story about a woman who was profoundly altered on a physical, emotional, and spiritual level. This is a story about me buying Tivas. Gabriella, thank you so much for joining, coming on to join me and talk about this extremely important topic. Thanks for having me. This is all I want to talk about, so. Yeah, true. So, take us back. What were your associations with this lovely footwear before you began your quest to buy them? Uh, So I always thought of them as something that outdoorsy white people wore, people who did whitewater rafting, hiking, stuff that I did not grow up doing at all. Um, And they were just really dorky, just like a dorky 90s kid sandal. Um, So that is what I thought of them until about a year ago um, when I was training for my first marathon and my feet were just so, they just hurt so much and I Mm -hmm. saw a woman wearing TVs and I was like, maybe they're not so bad, maybe I need to try these out. So your mom offered to help you out once you started on this journey. What did she say and what was your response? Because I actually, my mom has been trying to get me to buy them Uh for a long time and I refuse. And I sent her your article and she said, oh my gosh, should I get them for your birthday, which is next week? And I was like, no. So what did your mom say? So I think I had 
been talking about them more than I would like to admit. Uh, so she texted me a few months before my birthday and I think had forgotten the name. So she just said, do you want me to get you those white people sandals? Um, but I said no, I was like, this is something I have to do by myself. So what was it about this shoe that you saw that this light bulb went off of your head that made you say, I need to try these out? Mm -hmm. You know, I run too, I run marathons, I know your feet really hurt. So I'm intrigued by the feet hurting comfort thing. Mm -hmm. They just look so functional. Um, this was not even the pair I was originally gonna get. I was just gonna get like the standard universal one, but then they were sold out in the ones I wanted. So I ended up just going totally insane and getting like the upgraded, super intense ones. I actually saw a friend like a week after I got them and she's like, whoa, you went for the really hardcore ones. And I did, and they're super comfortable. So you can just wear them around, like what is it that makes mm -hmm. them so comfortable in comparison to another type of sandal, like a uh, flip-flop or something? Well, okay, I'm very anti-flip-flop, so okay. I would never go down that route. Um, you get a lot of support on your feet, you can wear them to the beach, that's a big thing. The sand doesn't stick to them, they're waterproof, it's been raining a ton this summer, so you can wear them through thunderstorms and not worry about them. I wear them walking the dog, I wear them to work. They're never leaving my feet, is what I'm saying. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Okay, so I feel like this this is kind of the renaissance of the, like you said, like crunchy white people shoe, mm -hmm. right? Everyone's wearing Birkenstocks. We're seeing a lot more Tevas. Uh, we, I saw, when my producer was talking to me, I said, I saw Emily Oyes from Glossier wearing like Chanel Tevas on her Instagram uh. story last week. Why do you think that is, why are they becoming such high fashion? Is it just because of functionality? Are we just embracing something that's comfortable for once? I think that fashion loves to do unexpected, counterintuitive things, so embracing the ugly sandal is a way to do it. And I think the Tiva rise uh, into high fashion came with the opening ceremony collaboration, with Normcore being more of a thing. Um, I will say I, w I didn't think the fashion aspect of it would translate on me, and I knew that, but I don't think that should stop anyone. I mean, you look pretty cute in them, I'm not gonna Thank lie. You. You're wearing them right now, Thanks. and I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued for sure. So you are now what we are going to call a Tivangelist, mm -hmm. a Tiva evangelist. I'm, I just can't, I haven't been able to do Birkenstocks, but I feel like is maybe the uh, gateway drug into Tivas. So try to convince me, give me the elevator pitch one last time. Why should I buy them? They're comfortable, they won't fall off your feet. Everyone's doing it now. Uh, I am yeah. a person that just follows trends. I will say I think Birkenstocks are a little more hardcore. I, so I think Interesting. the Tiva is the entry to that. So you're saying Tivas are less than Birkenstocks. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And then Chacos is like the next level, which I'm never gonna get on, hopefully. You're never gonna yeah. do Chacos? I mean, never say never, you are wearing Tivas right that's now. That's true, that's true. <laughs> well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining me. I'm definitely intrigued. Maybe maybe I'll get some Chanel ones like Emily Weiss, who mm -hmm. knows? That could be your next pair. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> Thanks, for Thanks so much for joining us. Up next, Saeed is answering your questions for Dear Ferocity. time for Dear Ferocity, where I give advice to questions you direct message me. Okay, so this week we are talking about dealing with career rejection and failure. Listen, I'm a writer, I've been an editor, I know what it's like. Uh, you can check out the hashtag, share your rejections for all kinds of thoughts and stories from other people. Let's get to some questions. All right, 
There are a lot of journals that have small submission fees that are judged by people I really like, but unfortunately, I never submit because of the cost. The fear of rejection paired with financial loss is a lot. How can I better approach this obstacle? Should I choose which submission fees are worth it? Yes, uh, particularly uh, for poets and uh, poetry uh, opportunities and literary opportunities. Yeah, there will be contests where you might need to pay, I don't know, ten or fifteen dollars, sometimes more. Uh, to submit your work to have it considered. Everyone can't afford that. I mean, considering if, especially if you're sending out poems to all kinds of different literary journals and contests, that can rack up very quickly. Um, I'd say this. You can set a budget for yourself uh, and, and stick to it. If you, if you want to have the flexibility to apply to those kinds of contests, that's fine. Um, I would just say set a budget and, and, and stick to it because you know paying uh, to have your work published is, is frustrating. Um, I would also say it's not necessary. Um, I submitted my um, original book manuscript for Prelude to Bruise, my poetry collection, to a couple of contests uh, that required uh, you know some kind of submission fee. I think it was like thirty or forty-five dollars. Um, it was published by a uh, by a publisher ultimately that didn't require me to do that. So you don't. Have have to pay money uh, to get your work out there. And so it's totally possible to find great uh, publications and contests that don't uh, require money. So, you know, those are the things to consider. Um, how do you know, after repeated rejections, if your stuff is any good? How do you know if it is of value? Not just belief, but knowing. Not just belief, but knowing. I don't think you know. I don't, I don't think that's possible. Um, I, think, I think all you can trust in is how passionate you continue to feel about the work. Listen, we have moments, I have weeks or days where I look at a draft and I'm just not feeling it. But in, in the long view, you know, when you look at the work, are you still passionate about it? I've been working on this memoir for three years now. And one of the main reasons I've been able to stick with it is that every time I return to the draft and I reread, you know, the previous chapter or I go back earlier in the book, I still really believe in the story I'm telling. So no, you don't know if it's any good. You only know if it's good and of value to you and you hope that will connect with readers. Um, okay, one more question. Uh, how do writers of color or any writer know after they are rejected whether the work just isn't ready or if the world isn't ready for the work? This is a question I've had for decades through my own literary journey. Yeah, something I've noticed in, in rejection is, you know, particularly with like publishers, um, sometimes, frankly, you know, writers have to deal with being rejected because a publisher goes, oh, we ha already have another book by a black gay writer or, oh, we already have a, a Roxanne Gay-esque writer. We have Roxanne Gay ourselves, so why do we, you know, that's the thing. And so part of what we're having to navigate as writers is kind of seeing through, um, you know, the bullshit um, of a 89% white uh, publishing industry and, and, and navigating whether they believe in the value of our stories. But again, again, I don't think it's whether you know for sure. I think it's only whether you trust and are passionate enough about your work. In the end, you are going to be the biggest advocate for what you are doing. And so I think in dealing with rejection, we have to accept that reje rejection is not failure. 
Rejection is not an indictment of who you are or, or the value of your work. It's simply a decision that has been made in a specific instance. And in the end, if you're going to have a career, you have to believe in your work more than anyone else, more than anyone else, editors, readers, agents, publicists, because if you're going to, if, if your career is going to depend on outside uh, feedback, you're just gonna constantly kind of be thrown about. Um, so that's something we have to learn, friends, and we learn it every day, myself included. Uh, thank you for your questions. Thanks for sharing your rejection stories. As always, friends, you can uh, you know DM me questions and topics uh, for future Dear Ferocities. I'm going on the road starting tomorrow, but when I'm back in New York City, we'll have another Dear Ferocity. Up next, Isaac and I are going to read some more of your tweets. I think we're gonna talk about Aretha Franklin some more too. Um, as all of you are doing right now on the timeline, we also wanted to take time to remember the life, the legacy and career of Aretha Franklin. She died today at her home in Detroit. Here's a quote uh, from her family's statement. In one of the darkest moments of our lives, we are not able to find the appropriate words to express the pain in our heart. We have lost the matriarch and rock of our family. We have felt your love for Aretha, and it brings us comfort to know that her legacy will live on. Absolutely. What a legacy yeah. it is. I mean, I really think, you know, when we lose stars like this, there's always this outpouring of love. Mm -hmm. um, but this is one of those moments where she has touched so many people's lives. It's hard to imagine a world in which Aretha Franklin is ever forgotten. She's timeless. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, already beginning to learn more. I've always thought of Aretha Franklin and her relationship to the city of Detroit, Michigan. I didn't realize that she and I were both born in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just like immediately, you know, because she is in some ways the voice of a period of American history, you know, we're renewing our relationship in history and grieving her. Uh, here's something I tweeted as I was reading during one of the breaks. It's a quote from the end of a beautiful Beautiful, beautiful postscript from The New Yorker that just went live. Her death is in all of us as her songs are in all of us. She is as immortal as can be. Immortal as can wow. be. Absolutely. Beautiful. Here's a tweet from Jamila. After Michael, Whitney, and Prince, the perceived immortality of our greats was shattered. But I just never considered that Aretha Franklin, an elder, wouldn't be around forever. Mm. And I think that's the thing about Icons, right? Mm -hmm. To be an icon at that level, not just in the casual way we, we throw around the word, is in some ways to be a staple. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, it also means in some ways almost you just, it's not that you're taking them for granted, but like Jamila is saying, it's, it's just, they just become a part, the integral part of the fabric mm -hmm. of, of our culture. Yeah, and of existence. Yes. So you always think mm -hmm. they're going to be there. Absolutely, but that's just not the case. Um, here's a tribute from Kristen Clark. Aretha Franklin was a force behind the scenes during the civil rights movement donating co concert proceeds, posting bail for activists, hosting fundraisers, and using her platform to promote voting rights. Mm. Hello! Mm. And she, of course, empowered generations of women with her music. And I just, I'm sorry, the photo that's just shared yeah. right there, like that's to see all these photos that are being shared of her throughout history. It's mm -hmm. just so, so beautiful. Yeah. Here's a comment um, from a queer mermaid. 
Send a petty fax today in Aretha's honor. And if you're not familiar with that story, do you do you remember it's, this one? Oh, I remember. I, the, the t- who was she talking about? Was it Diana, Diana Warwick? Warwick? Yeah. Diana Warwick. Dion. Dion Warwick. I'm sorry, Dion. Dion Warwick. I apologize. Yeah, she'll send you a fax too. <laughs> right. Uh, apparently, uh, had misstated at Whitney's funeral that Aretha Franklin was there, and actually said that Aretha Franklin was her godmother. Mm. Five years pass. Five years pass, and somebody at the AP wakes up to, and this is a direct quote, a lengthy fax, and it was just Aretha Franklin taking umbrage with that moment five years later. Here's the thing, AP didn't respond. I don't even know if they could have responded to a fax. That. Aretha Franklin called them the next day and was like, did you get my facts? <laughs> so again, there's these moments of sadness, of course, and appreciation. Yeah. But also, I mean, she was she was a legend and she had fun. And also, and in and, and that New Yorker peach, they, they draw a connection to Aretha singing uh, Respect. Uh, mm. and, and the homage is very much implicit information. Always say gracious, best revenge is your paper. Aretha was known for, she insisted on being paid up front. And she put the money in her pocketbook you know, as she showed up for every performance. And here's the thing, I don't think it takes away from the grace of Aretha's iconic status to also talk about like the rough and tumble a relationship um, as a black woman making her way through the 20th and 21st century having to fight for every dollar. And right? having to be that tough, <laughs> uh-huh. a tough woman. Yes. Absolutely. It wasn't a game, it wasn't a game. Well, as always, Aretha, you're immortal. Your voice is immortal. Thank you for joining us today, yeah. friends. Um, and thank you to our guest, Thomas Page McBee, the best boxer and writer. Absolutely we wonderful conversation there. We love there. it. Dominic Holden, Craig Silverman, Paul McLeod, who's coming for your wig. Yeah, I saw right. that. That's Look messed out. up. Look out. And Stephanie McNeil and Gabrielle Paella. Uh, I don't know how I feel about those shoes, y'all. Uh, Gabriella Paella. And yeah. let me tell you, Tivas. I'm not sold either. Listen, we're about to hit the road, so David Mack and Chantal Fallins will be co-hosting tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Look out for us on the timeline. We're going to be using the hashtag making the most of. I can't wait. Yeah, our flight leaves at 9.30, so if you see us tweeting at 10 a.m., something has happened. (laughs) Something's gone wrong. (laughs)